All right, we are live. Welcome, everybody. This is Pej on Pej's Recovery Corner. Uh, this is a recovery podcast where we talk about all things recovery or lack thereof, depending on how you roll. Um, today, I have a very special guest. It's a good old friend of mine. His name is Trey Sides. Um, he is in the recovery process. He has been for some time now. Um, Trey, welcome to the corner. Thank you for having me, Pej. Thank you for coming on. Uh, Obviously, I mean, you think I think you've seen some of our episodes and listened to some of them. Uh, we want to deep go go into your past and see where you're from, where you were born, where you were raised, kind of get into your story a little bit and uh, see like what ended up happening to you in your life, and then we'll get into the recovery portions afterwards. But uh, who who's Trey Sides? Who are you? Like where where are you, where are you from? So yeah, I was I was uh, born and raised in Knoxville, Tennessee. You know, in the up on uh, the Appalachian Mountains up there, you know, and always, hmm. yeah, so I, I grew up with a with some parents who were, I didn't have like a bad childhood, you know, it's like I grew up with some parents who were very loving, kind, although there was some, of course, dysfunction as, as, as most families do have, but dad was emotionally distant a little bit because, you know, his father was alcoholic. Uh, and he had a stepfather who was alcoholic, so he never really had a close relationship with the father. And so, of course, that kind of gets passed down a little bit. So um, he, was, he was he was military. Uh-huh. He's military. And he's uh, now a, a scientist and a very you know world-renowned scientist working with uh, scanning transmission electron microscopes. He builds them, maintains them. So needless to say, he's very good at, at finding some very, very small problems. <laughs> so... You know, that happened with me. I, I, I could never really get anything right growing up. You know, it's like there was always a way it could have been done better. And I know it was now that it was coming from love, but then it just felt like I wasn't good enough. And there was all I was I could never, you know, live up to live up to what it, what it was. If I felt like you wanted. You know, Did you have any brothers or sisters, like any siblings that you were being compared to or growing up like around no. that? That we're doing no, better than you. I have a younger brother by uh, four years. Um, Zach, his name is Zach, and yeah, no, and no, not too much comparing. Just I, I don't know, yeah, but no. And then, and mom's a nurse, you know. So she's she was very, she was a caregiver, and um, there, you know, there's there's definitely some codependency, you know, in that in that relationship, you know, as far as dysfunction goes. Um, but you know, she worked with you know burn victim units. She was in a, a burn unit nurse for quite some time, and then did hospice for a while, a hospice nurse, and then home health care. So she's a, she is a very very emotionally strong woman, one of the you know, most strong I've ever known. It's interesting that you say that because my mom used to be a physical therapist and worked in the burn unit too, and told me lots of stories about her her uh, you know her time in, in doing that. I remember that back then she would tell me when I was growing up. So as far as Knoxville, that's where you're from originally. Yeah. It, was this a, um, uh, what was it like growing up in Knoxville? I mean, it's middle America, you know, were you, were you exposed to religions? Were you exposed to anything? Like what, what was going on in Knoxville? Is it a boring area in, in America or, or was there activities or things that you would find of interest growing up as a youngster? Yeah, no, there was, there was actually, you know, but that, this was an age before cell phones, you know, before they were widespread and where we had to actually go out and meet up with our friends to interact with them. And so we did that a lot. We'd always do hiking, camping, 
going out, the riding, you know, back, remember roller skating rinks? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> They're still yeah. around. But they, yes. are, they are. They're like kind of a novelty, though. It's, I don't know. But um, things like that, of course. And then, yeah, re religion played a big part in, in, my, in my childhood and growing up. I think I've been baptized like three times, you know. <laughs> Were you Christian? Were you Catholic? What was it? It was, it was a Southern Baptist type denomination. Um, you know, I like to joke that Tennessee is like the belt buckle of the Bible Belt. You know, <laughs> we are right there. It is in the heart of it. You know, we're in the, the heartland. It's the, you know, Dolly Parton. You know, we've got, you know, just like that wholesome, loving type ideal is there, you know, and that we try to portray a church and all that. And then, but then, of course, behind the scenes is a whole other story, you know, of course. I grew up on Dolly Parton. I actually love Dolly Parton. You know, she was definitely very somebody that uh, I loved her music. I love her voice. You know, yeah, they, always, say she, they say she would absolutely be one of the billionaires of the world, but she gives away so much of her net worth annually that she, you know, remains not. You know, that she's she's worth still quite worth still quite a lot, but just she she gives so much away. It's, it's amazing. I do love that woman. <laughs> it's awesome. Awesome. Okay, so so growing up out there, I mean, when did you first start getting into drugs and alcohol? What was first? Uh, it's it's foggy. It's foggy because I one of the first drugs that I do remember was pain thinner. So painkillers, pain thinner, a pain thinner. Okay, pain okay. thinner. Yeah. So so you're huffing. Yeah. So it began. I believe I was working with my father. We were doing some painting or stripping or something, and. I remember smelling the paint thinner and I got like a lightheaded, dizzy, but slightly euphoric feeling. Mm -hmm. And there was that something that was inside of me that kind of clicked and attached to that and wanted that. You know, it was, it felt innate. It felt like, it just felt like it was a part of what I was that I wanted that feeling and I wanted more. Was it accidental that you discovered this or did you did you know like this is going to get you high? Yeah, no, I, I had no prior knowledge of, of like that was going to that's even what I was doing at the time. I don't believe like I just I didn't hang around with people who did drugs at that age. I did, you know, I'm probably like 16, 15, 16, you know, at this time. And yeah, it was just and then, um, you know, a little time passed and it became like computer duster. That was one of the things we did, you know, it was, it was a very much would check you out of reality real quick. And, um, I mean, why were you seeking this? Were you uncomfortable in your skin? Was life I, not I, nice? Yeah. Like, like, as I mentioned a while ago that, you know, I always felt like I wasn't good enough. I always felt like there was something, um, not like wrong with me, but I could always sense and see in the people around me ways in which they were better than me or, you know, or, or different than me. And so that made me, you know, of course, imply that I was different. I was always comparing myself and putting people above me. And, and so it's like, there was like a, just a, probably a, a sense of disease in general, you know, I'm sorry, because at 16, I got, I went to therapy for social anxiety. You know, that's when I was, I was put into um, psychotherapy and we started that and, they actually prescribed me some SSRIs at that early age. They don't, they don't do that anymore. And I'll get to that in a moment. But uh, so a, a major, a major life event that took place was in towards the end of high school, I had been, you know, 
not really dabbling in anything, you know, just doing the work and um, at school. And then I started working at this place and um, <coughs> I ended up getting introduced to Xanax and Dharma said my, <coughs> there was these guys I was working with and they asked me if my parents had any, any, any drugs or took any medicine. And then I was like, I don't know. I went home and looked, came back and I told them, <laughs> because I had never heard of these before that they took something called Xanax and Dharma said, you know, I didn't know what they were or how to even pronounce it at the time, but they had me steal them uh, from my parents and brought them to work and, and it's almost as if they were giving them to me. I thought I was fitting in and being one of the cool kids, but because you found stuff in your parents' stuff to come present yeah. them with, and so, but they were kind of uh, they were kind of using it as a means to to bully me and watch me make a fool of myself and laughing. And do you have any idea what you were taking or what you were going to be taking? I, no, not probably. I knew they just I, like I said. I, I believe the inhalants probably played a big part in kind of messing with my memory from that age <laughs> so i'm um some of it's foggy i don't remember like if a first person account of some of these things i just remember the, the stories of, of what was happening um, but anyways these guys got me to uh we all talked and we suggested that I, I start a small fire and we wouldn't have to work the next day and then that night on xanax what um, was what was work what kind of job were you doing it was a it was a, a restaurant like a steakhouse and uh, we were in the kitchen in the back doing prep work and and whatnot and dishes and stuff and uh they asked me to start a small fire and then that night like i said on xanax darmacet alcohol and computer dust i went around 4 a.m and poured five gallons of gasoline all over the roof and lit it on fire how old were you 17 years old so you were still a teenager yeah i was still underage and um I ended up getting, I ended up getting arrested for that when I, after I had turned 18, waited until I turned 18, of course, so that they could uh, speak to me without my parents present. You know, it was, I guess, a tactic of the arson investigation, investigator. And so I had taken the ASVAB in high school. I had, I had passed with pretty good, or not passed, but I had gotten a score in which I was going to be able to go into a, like a pilot training type, you know, path. But uh, once that had happened where I had gotten arrested, that was my life kind of crashed around me. You know? Okay. So, <coughs> so, crashed around you like what? Like, did you get incarcerated? Yeah, yeah I did. I, well, I ended up with, with doing six months of, of jail time and then... Uh, was that juvenile hall? No, I was 18. I was tried as an adult. And so I was... I did six months at the Knox County uh, detention facility and then uh, I was... I was uh, given seven years of state probation, supervised. So, in the in the time that you were locked up, what were you doing in there? Were you, was there drugs? Yeah, any time we could get a hold of them. Of course, I was doing them. Um, we, you know, uh, there wasn't too much. It wasn't a, it wasn't prison. It was more, it was a county night type deal, you know. So it was it was for people who were doing less than a year. So it was wasn't as I guess lax as I've heard the prisons can be as far as getting stuff in, but. Yeah, after that happened, I absolutely just had given, you know, I didn't know where to go in life anymore. So, you know, being an addict, drinking, you know, jokingly calling myself an alcoholic because I felt like I was, I drank enough to be able to call myself that. And it was kind of a badge of honor, right? you know, amongst all the, the kids I was hanging out with. Well, 
it wasn't long before things got bad enough that my parents kind of forced me into a, a treatment center. Treatment center in, in Tennessee or out of state? In Tennessee. It was a place called Cornerstone Recovery in, in Knoxville. And I, that's when I was introduced to the 12-step fellowship for the first time. I, at what uh, age? At 18? Uh, no, I, I'm about 22, 20, 21, 22 years old at this point. 22. So that was the first. Because it's what I, was, I remember now what happened that led me to that first treatment was running from imagined police because I was, and this was just from alcohol. I had gotten so delusional. I thought the police were after me. I got on a three-story apartment building roof and then was running. They were after me and I thought I need to get down. So I tried to jump into a tree and that was the last thing I remember. I remember waking up on the ground with uh, the paramedics had shown up and I was taken to the hospital where my parents were called. And I think the next day I was in treatment. <laughs> so let me get this straight. You thought the cops were after you, but they were not. Correct. Yeah, there was there was no police in, at all. I had I had uh, some type of alcohol psychosis. I don't I don't know if that's possible. Or... It sounds like it was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very much. So it just goes to show, like anytime when I was drinking or using, I took it to the absolute extreme. I I wanted to be the best addict. I wanted to be the best alcoholic. I wanted to drink the most and do the craziest stuff. We we grew up with these guys from CKY. I don't know if you've heard of that band. Uh, uh, Camp Kill Yourself was, was the acronym, but they uh, Bam Margera's brother was the camp. Drummer. Camp what? Camp Kill Yourself. <laughs> CKY. Can't so these guys, it was kind of the the prequel to the whole Jackass movement. Okay. Uh, so. These were the guys. So we were really into that, the skateboarding. And, you know, we always just wanted to be the best at, at everything we were doing and the craziest, the get the biggest reaction from people. And so, like I said, I, I took it to the extreme, you know. And so when I finally found the 12-step program, though, you know, I, I, I really got into the whole, the fact that they were giving me the opportunity to come up with a higher power that I could believe in. Because the one from my childhood, I had felt abandoned me or wasn't even real. You know, it just wasn't there. How old were you when I met you? Oh, wow. Um, 30, late, 20, late 20s? Oh, 30. When it was 2018. So that's was, was when I first came out to California. Yeah. So you were in your early 30s? Yeah. Yeah. How many treatment? How many times had you gone to treatment when I met you? Probably six. I they were like treatment in in uh, California. Is that what had happened? No, it was mostly in in Tennessee, yeah, Middle Tennessee, and then um, yeah, no, it yeah, and then but they finally offered me the opportunity to go to California, and I took it because it just hadn't been working in Tennessee at all. I had to do something different. So during those times, all those, the six times, like in Tennessee, how, what was the longest that you were staying sober? So when I was about 24, 25, I, I had about nine months sober and I, I met this girl, Jessica, and we were together for quite some time, about four years. And we had talked about getting married. So, um, and we had, we kind of, we considered each other's, you know, as a fiance and, but this, this girl finally, when I was in college, she had an overdose of Tylenol and passed away. 
And this, this was the thing that this was the loss in my life that that really changed the ball game, you know, because this girl was a Unitarian Universalist. It's like a, it's what they call them, you know. There's a is a type of church where they accept all. It's all encompassing, all encompassing. all denominations. Yeah, and so that's what led me. Like I said, that first treatment, finding that higher power, you know, I was able to finally start to explore what it was that I I felt drawn to, and that was more of the an Eastern type philosophy, Eastern, you know, Eastern perspective on the human experience. And so, but I still struggled, you know, with addictions is, is, is not a joke. And I, I, I didn't take it as serious as I probably should have all throughout my twenties. I was getting nine months here. I, I got me a year here or there and six months, but it always, it always led back. So the whole time that you were getting those nine months and the year here and there, putting together short periods of time, this whole 12 step process that you've been introduced to in the first place, you never really took it serious, correct? Right, right. I never gave the 12 steps an actual honest. Uh, it wasn't a full yeah. surrender, possibly because of the type of God that you grew up with. You thought that that's not like, you know, I can't trust that God. And that's possibly what they're talking about here in this process, <laughs> right? Like this kind of higher power. You're probably used to a punishing God, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It was, it was a fear-based, if you don't do this, you're going to go burn for eternity. I, you know, so I've, being felt forced into it like in that way was uh, brought out a sense of rebellion. You know, it just came out. But, um, and, you got, and you've always, you've always had a, a, a side of you that was kind of rebellious. To, to oh, absolutely. Paint. I've had blue spiked hair and on the, in the punk days, you know, I was the, just you know, heavy metal, all that type of deal. Just anything I could play when I was growing up to to make my parents mad and show them that I was angry at all the attempts they were trying to make to better to better me. You know, I absolutely had a had a rebellious uh, nature to. Me. Okay, yeah. so so when I met you in 2018, I mean, I had seen you uh, around the recovery community in South Orange County, mm -hmm. in Southern California. And um, I didn't know much about you, but I did like your vibe. You were always respectful and nice to me. And uh, and so I thought, okay, I like this guy. Like, Trey's a nice guy. And I think I even heard you, like, share somewhere. And I thought, okay, this guy's cool. I think at the time you had put some time together sober, you had gotten a job, you'd gotten a place to live. Um, in that time, uh, it kind of baffled me to hear that this guy that we just heard share somewhere recently that seemed like he had it together has gone out and relapsed. Um, so I, I reached my hand out to you to try to see if we could help you in some way, shape, or form. And then uh, you pretty much came and you were around our circle. There was a side of you that was all loving, all encompassing, like, you know, very spiritual. Like I, I used to think like, this dude's kind of like, he's kind of holistic. Like he likes, he likes uh, spirituality on a deeper level. It seems like you were well-studied, well-versed, uh, you had, done research you had uh investigated different schools of thought perhaps you know um it wasn't like when i would talk with you it, there was a lot of spiritual talks but like but there was another side of you where i thought okay the guy loves having a lot of gadgets <laughs> you always had a lot of gadgets you know you were just kind of a character like that and uh also um i couldn't take a lot of things that you said seriously because i felt like uh you were one to 
live a lie and believe your own lies. I, I think it was during that Kratom episode, like when you had taken Kratom, like you not only had you taken it, I think like underground to where you were using it uh, to alter your state of mind, but you were also, once your covers were pulled, you were very, um, I don't want to, I don't know, like defensive, like to basically say like, it's not a bad thing. What the, what you guys think about Kratom and what I think about Kratom are two different things. Like you guys think it's, it's, a, it's a drug and I believe that it's, it's used for spiritual practices. But then I thought, and I remember asking you, well, if it's really, you know, if it's not such a bad thing, why didn't you come right out and say, hey, I'm taking this. Mind you, I'm not just taking it myself. I'm taking it with somebody else who were supposed to both be staying sober. And, you know, and so I would have these like long drawn out dead end conversations with you about the fact that come on, Trey, like, you know, when people take Kratom, like not everybody tests for it. It doesn't always show up in your tests. And I think you guys were calculated and knowing that if you could take that like low key and why are we finding this stuff like um, hidden in various places, like in your backpack and, a, you know, almost a half bottle or even like almost a bottle, like a full bottle of it. Like I would think to myself, like, when are you going to get real with yourself? Like what what's up, dude? Because I knew like you you were about that namaste, like spiritual lifestyle. You had the little drapes and things like that 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 would kind of show a representation of Trey of a guy that was like a deep spirit that was really in touch with his soul. But I just thought to myself, like, you've got this big ego that I thought, why, like, do you not see this? And and you would often talk about meditation and you would talk about your own meditative practices and the fact that you meditate, right? So um, once, you know, we, we had our little issue a couple of times, you did not, uh, I believe that you, you stayed with us for a while, but then eventually you worked your way out and you took off and went somewhere else. So when you went somewhere else, um, I know that you had a relapse in that process. Um, it was back to Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken. Um, right. So tell us about that. Like, tell us about what happened to you and then the transition of why you ended up. Oh, somebody's, hold on real quick. So Ariane Clark is asking, what's Kratom? And it's actually K-R-A-T-O-M, okay? Mm -hmm. And then um, Christine Williams says, 25 years working treatment, highly recommend meditation, teaching this class for many years. I use it every day, is definitely a tool. And uh, so what we wanna do here is we wanna go back to Ariane's question, what's Kratom? Um, yeah. Go ahead and break it down and talk about what Kratom is first so that people that don't know become educated. So kratom is a type of it's a type of leaf that's uh, from the Southeast Asia area, and a lot of the people there they they chew it, uh, they they grind it up, they make tea out of it. it. It's basically a type of plant that stimulates the exact same receptors that opiates do. So it gives a subtle, it gives a subtle, but almost in the same way that that same type of feeling as you would get from from opiates can give you energy can can uh, reduce pain but at the same time it's just as like opiates as it as the, uh in the same way that it, it does have extreme withdrawal like very uncomfortable withdrawal and um yeah i mean it, it's just a it's a it's a legalized like drug basically it's the same thing as like you know, I, I view it now as the same as like smoking weed or or anything of, of like that. You know, 
That's basically what I know about it. Does it make you feel like you're on heroin? Not not quite that strong. No, it's not that quite. It's just a. It eases the it, it eases the mind, and that's that's part of like you know. It quiets the mind. It makes you know emotions not as not as sharp and stuff like that. And so it, it's it can. Does it usually lead back to opiate use for opiate users that use it temporarily? in the type of a setting where they, I mean, I know people that aren't in sober living and are not in treatment that haven't done opiates in a while. And they, they start using Kratom as an alternative, like an opiate antagonist, like to, to kind of feel like they are relieving themselves. Yeah. But also, you know, it does more often than none, take them back to opiates. Absolutely. And first, I mean, the, the part of it that was the worst for me was the keeping the secret part. You know, keeping that hidden and and whatnot, but it all boiled down to the fact that I, I had not, I was not willing to completely surrender. I was still holding on to a, some semblance of control over my life. You know that I was, I had, I had to be able to control at least how you know how I felt, my energy, you know, and I wanted to help control that. wasn't ready to like surrender. wasn't ready to surrender completely. No, and during was, this, during during that time when you guys were using it, um, <clears throat> did you and your cohort, which he's still a dear friend of ours, um, were you guys in hopes of not getting caught because you thought, well, they don't really test for this stuff here? We hadn't really. I, I think we both just knew that we were both smart guys, and, and we we knew that. But at, at the time, it was just a. It's oddly enough, I think he had just accidentally noticed that it was in my backpack at one point and then asked for some. And then then it was then this, you know, the secret was broken. So him and I both knew we were we were we were taking it, but we never really talked about it. You know, it, it was kind of just a, he would just ask for some here and there and he, he knew I had it. And so it was a, yeah, it was, it was a terrible lie. So being in that mind state during that time, seeking something that's going to try to relieve you, however that may be. Is it fair to say that you weren't really in recovery as you are in recovery now? Correct. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, it's not something that you're secretly doing now in your life, right? No, no. Today, it, it, it feels different. Like if that was something I was doing, it would be a secret. And I am terrified today of these secrets because they they they're like evil seeds. They they grow really fast. Evil weed seeds, like you know, in, in your garden, that type of weed. And it grows and will take it over, you know, before I, before I know it, the secret life is becomes my life and I'm pushed out of recovery and, 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 uh, yeah, that always leads to down to a bad place. <laughs> I'm enjoying my conversation with you because I had, we butted had so many times back then where I, you know, I, I figured if you're living under our roof, please don't live a secretive lifestyle. Please, uh, follow the recovery path the way that we would like you to in this particular house and quit making up excuses of why it's okay or why you should be doing it to hear you talking this way gives me hope and it makes me realize that each individual that comes into the recovery process will have their own journey in their own time where they get to make their own decisions of when they want to get real with themselves when they want to commit to their innermost self that anything that's mind-altering is not sober there's a lot of people that are in recovery that seek out ayahuasca they seek out uh, many different, many different things that are going to, um, they think is going to make them take them on a spiritual path. Me personally, like 
if I wanted a microdose, like on mushrooms, you know, if or or LSD or or uh, ketamine and things like that, because I may still experience depression, then am I really tapping into a power greater than myself, or am I still seeking power through other uh, substances that are going to kind of level me and make me feel a little bit more better, or be able to process my emotions, or to be able to uh, work through certain things. I would rather, you know, for me, I love um, this path of recovery that I'm on, you know, rather than having to rely upon any kind of substance that's going to affect me uh, from the neck up. So I appreciate you talking about that. So you went back to Knoxville. Yeah. After so, you- so I had, um, I had, yeah, I've been sober for a while, you know, for, a, you know, well, I, I don't know, you know, at that point, to be honest, looking at it back now, I wouldn't say that I was completely clean, but I, I hadn't been doing the hard drugs or drinking yet. And that wasn't until uh, I had moved in with the current, with that girlfriend and then COVID hit. And so and that's what led to, I lost my job. I lost the meetings I was going to, the people I was around. So I was just stuck at home. And, and the roommates where we were living had some gin on the table. And I knew I knew a little bit of that would calm the, the, the feelings of discontent and irritability and all the restlessness that was in me. And it did for a moment. And then four hours later, I had heroin. That fast. And, yeah. I was, I was do, you like, think that, do you think that happened? Because were you not doing meetings or anything when you had gone back to Knoxville? No, this is, this is still in Orange County. This was, oh, this, this was, Orange County. It happened. This is Orange County. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I had found heroin, you know, through one of those apps, those, um, what is it like it was called uh, let go one of those apps yeah yeah i mean i'm not going to give the keywords away just in, you know whatever I think any any creative addict will know or can figure it out themselves they know how to absolutely so that's how i found it so fast but then yeah i went back to knoxville the girlfriend at the time she had a lot of clean time and she wasn't she finally you know found me out you know that i was smoking heroin and um said you can't do this something is going to have to happen right now and my my uh, idea was to go back to Tennessee, stay with my parents and get my act together. I don't know what I thought I was doing, but um, going back to where I had just recently tried to commit suicide was was not probably a good idea. And so right. I, I knew where I was headed when I made that call to you. And right. I, you know, the reason I made that call is I knew if I kept going down the, you know, a few more, a couple more weeks, I was going to be robbing people again. You know, and, and I knew where that took me. I, I, I can't live that way. So I made that call to you and came back to California. So you came back to California. Why did you take recovery so seriously this time? I, I, what, made, what made Trey actually surrender? Like, why? It's, I don't know. It's been a gift of it's been a gift from something almost beyond me, you know, that I, I was given this. It's like I've tried every other way to stay sober every other way possible and now i have finally proven to myself that there, there is no other way to stay sober except to follow the program exactly as it's written you know and, and it's a, and it includes a complete abstinence from all drugs service work you know giving back to those around me working with a mentor or a sponsor to take me through the 12 steps and you know attending these meetings where i can share the message that, that we can get sober and we can change and we can live productive lives again so it's fair to say that you've had spiritual experience, spiritual experiences, and a spiritual awakening, correct? 
I, I, I would say so. I mean, I, I, it's, it's a, it's an, it's a, a weird thing to, to say that about myself, you know, but it's, I definitely feel different. You know, life is, um, life is growing in a way now that has never grown before in the past. Love it. So there's many different meditative practices that people can do. People that are in recovery, people that are out of recovery, people that are just meditators, they like to meditate, you know, you can do guided meditations, you can do online meditations, you can do silent meditations, you can go on meditation retreats, you can go to meditative meetings where they do meditations. Uh, Do you, uh, I know for, for me personally, it was really hard to quiet my mind in early recovery, but over a period of time, it became much easier, especially when I would do my utmost to just quiet the mind enough to, you know, that soundness of mind to be able to tap into something greater than myself. Um, conversations with myself, which can also be interpreted as like a level of consciousness where God is stepping in. And I, I, I believe that I have conversations with God the most when I'm meditating. Yeah. And the reason that I do that is because I quiet my mind enough to where I would imagine what would God say to me and God would always say things that are all loving, all encompassing, you know, just... It's a loving God. It's not a punishing God. So for me, like meditation is not as difficult as it used to be when I had a, a lot of chatter going on in my head. Um, and when I say chatter, I believe that when they when they talk about the itty bitty shitty committee that goes on in our heads, I believe that that is that it's that negative self talk. Let alone a lot of it could be many different types of talk. Some of it could be the voice of reason. Some of it could be our mother's voice. Some of it could be. Uh, many of the teachings that our te- teachers taught us. Some of it could be our dad or somebody in our family that's made it appear like we would never amount to anything. So then we, we have that, that self-pity, that negative self-talk that we have within ourselves, that all that chatter. And when we can actually like kind of put all that aside and to be able to quiet the mind and like tap into something greater than, I believe that for me, like my meditation is, is a lot more uh, peaceful. Cindy, uh, Cindy, Wa- Cindy Camachi, I'll just say, says, <laughs> peanut gallery between the ears. <laughs> Out here, I've been uh, hearing it referred to as K-Fuck Radio. K-Fuck Radio. Yeah. Right. I've, I've heard that in the meetings, yeah. So, so how does, what, when you meditate, how often do you meditate? How long do you meditate? And what, what kind of meditative practices do you, do you like to have in your life? Right. So I, I, I usually do what is called Vipassana meditation. It's just, and that's roughly translated as like insight meditation, you know, just to see things as they are. You know, that's, that's the type I usually do. It's, um, so for me, like meditation is a, is, is a practice that deals with, you know, looking at the fundamental natures of the mind, because our mind is, that is the, this is the one thing, the common denominator of every experience we ever have on this, on this planet is, is our mind. It is the basis of everything we experience. And also it's the basis of every contribution that we're going to make to the lives of others. So it made sense to me to try to, you know, train this aspect of myself, right? So just to get in there, you know, and, and we all know what an untrained mind is like, and that's where we're you were just kind of talking about, you know, it's just going and going and they call it the monkey mind in that it's un- unpredictable and it's all over the place and it does whatever it wants. And, and that's just kind of how it is. You know, the mind does that. And, uh, through meditation, we learned that that's okay. And that so 
it's not so much a, a attempt to quiet the mind as it is to just see exactly what's going on clearly. And so that's, we, we, we touch into that state of, uh, of witnessing consciousness. Well, I can see my thoughts come in I can, I can, and then I can let them go and not be drawn into it. And then, oh, I got to follow that one to what are we having for dinner later? Or oh, I, what I, that conversation yesterday, I got to go over that again. And I should have said this and that. You know, it's like I'll get drawn into it, pulled every which way, past and future. And um, it just goes. But if I can step back and watch the thought come in and then go and then stay with the breath, you know, it's like that's I'm one, one step closer to, you know, or I'm just, furthering my meditation practice you know it's also it's not so much like um, from what i've been I, you know i listen to a lot of people there's one person i i love the most his name is sam harris he's like a, a philosopher and neuroscientist type guy and uh, he talks about it like being as though we're all asleep and we're dreaming of being in a prison and we're given so many different ways to you know this tradition says saw at the bars when the when the guards are, are on shift change or this this practice says is like the blueprint so we can dig ourselves out you know or some people are just content with being there you know and so all of these all of these hustle and bustle to get out or whatever and we forget that we're dreaming and that we just need to wake up from the dream you know and so it's um not so much meditation to try to be a good meditator but it's to really try to understand that that mind-made sense of self that uh, my ego, you know, that part of me that that wants to run the show and it, it acts off unconscious behaviors that are, condi- you know, the conditioned part of me that from that's was built from how I was raised. You know, if, if I'm running all that, I just keep acting out the same behavior patterns over and over again. And I wonder how did I end up here again? How did I end up here again? And it just keeps going over and it's to wake up out of that and, and to start to notice these patterns, you know? And um, it's just a, it's just been so beneficial. There's a lot of, there's a lot of benefits to it. You know, science is looking into it now. They're doing fMRIs on different, you know, advanced uh, practitioners, you know, monks from, you know, from Asia and such. And they're looking at their brains while they meditate and they're noticing some very profound things are happening, you know, <laughs> and, but like, like I've been hearing, you know, and I still believe, you know, all these benefits are secondary. The, the, the primary, the primary purpose is to just understand how the mind works, you know, and just to, just to see that, just to see it clearly so that I can stay, remain present because the present moment is when we experience life. I don't ever experience future. I don't ever, I've never experienced past. I've only ever experienced this moment. And if I'm always trying you to cherish your moments, absolutely. But today there, the, it's a, it's a gift. Every day is a gift. Every moment is a gift. You know, this is this future trip. I, those thoughts absolutely still arise all the time. All the time, I still reminisce on the past. Those are the thoughts that pop into my head, and sometimes I get drugged along by them. And I'm, I, and before I know it, I've gone through a whole conversation in my head, and, and then I, it's, there's like a snap out of it, you know, like a, wow, okay, I, 
totally was missed out. How did I drive here just now? You know, it's like you ever have those moments where you've driven somewhere and you've been thinking about something so deeply. Well, it happens all the time. I don't even remember. This time, I think my friend Jason Lawson was, he put it on his Facebook the other day. Have you ever just been driving a car and you're like, hold on, wait a second. I didn't even realize I was driving. (laughs) When did I get in this car? There was yeah. a time when I was like on the, on the grind where I was like, I got to get from point A to point B. And oh my God, he's getting in front of me and this car just cut me off and that one just happened and I hit another light. And but nowadays, like I guess usually when I'm behind the wheel, I forget that I'm even behind the wheel. I mean, I could sit in traffic for two hours and because I have so many other things going on in my – sometimes driving behind the wheel is a great time to go into like a meditative state. <laughs> Hopefully you're paying attention to the road though, and you're not going to crash into somebody. But uh, you know, autopilot was a friend of mine. Anyway, so um, do you believe in a higher power or a higher self? Like both, both. I mean, it's all. It just seems so evident to me that there is a primordial intelligence at work right now that's beating my heart for me. Right? If I was in charge of that, like, okay, beat. Be, be okay liver digest kidney i would die in 30 minutes i'd be dead or quicker you know it's like there's something else going on that that is a part of me that but it's not me right if that makes sense it's something yeah I of can, course something's something. making all this happen i know i didn't invent it <laughs> right yeah i can go stare into an orchid and i know I, I can draw that thing but i can't create that thing and make it be alive. There's something greater than myself, some yeah. creative intelligence. Um, here's what somebody, let's see. Ariane Clark says, what a great message. Um, Cindy says, love, love. And Jackie says, so cool to see you here, Trey, talking about meditation and recovery. Dear friend of mine, yay. I love it, man. I mean, it's so good to see you where you are in your life. You're living in Palm Springs now, correct? Yeah. Cathedral well, City, if I'm not mistaken. Technically, Cathedral City, yeah. I came and visited you there not that long ago when it was still kind of hot out. Um, really hot. Right? It seems like you've, you've made a life for yourself. You're part of a recovery community. Um, yeah. I think, I, I believe, just from hearing you and seeing the way that you present yourself and act right now in your recovery process, that you're very comfortable with who you are. No matter what kind of ups and downs present themselves within your life, you are, you're on the path. You are on the path, and that's all I ever wanted for you, Trey. It's it's so awesome to see you. Like, you know, we're doing this thing shoulder to shoulder now. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, yeah. So yeah. part of the, the meditation was for me was finding a source of joy and bliss that wasn't not dependent on any external factor. So there, there's a word in Sanskrit. I think it's Sanskrit called satchitananda. Uh-huh. Sat means being. Chit is consciousness, and then Ananda is bliss. So just being conscious is bliss, Satchitananda. And so to find that, it's to find a source of happiness that now I can I can rest in and then play in this world of form. You know, I rest in the formless and play in the world of form now. You know, and, and today I, I know that I have to be clean and sober to do that. Otherwise, it dulls me, and all I all I do is I'm just lost in form. I'm lost in thought form. I'm lost in comparing myself, anger, and different you know emotions that are just uncomfortable. So, so today I, I practice that in order to remember that that's there, and that 
this is this is but a a play of, you know of, of life you know it's like i believe we are each called to awaken you know the universal purpose is for the universe to awaken to itself you know and we are the in process of that you know it's like there's a great thing that a, a philosopher alan watts spoke about he said that you know we believe there is the big bang and that we're just a result of the big bang here we are now and it's like no it's like that's been a process and the process is still happening we are the big bang up to this point you know this is just how it's un been unfolded you know we are our 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 source is in stars you know every everything that makes us up is is of a, of a unit like you know what i mean a co cosmic proportional like type of wonder you know i don't know it's just i get it i get such a sense of joy knowing that it's like i get to be a part of this reality today you know? and so it's a wonderful thing <laughs> it's very powerful yeah. powerful what an honor and a privilege to have you here today um in a good space in your life and to be able to share that with you i I, I love that you came on here. I love that you talked about meditation. I think it's of vital importance that when we do, those of us that have suffered with addiction and alcoholism, when we do clean up, you know, however we seek meditation to be able to tap into that, you know, another level of consciousness. It's, you know, the drugs and the alcohol are nothing but a symptom as we know. Um, I, I believe that when people have to inebriate themselves or intoxicate themselves, they they are uh, taking away from the opportunity to actually tap into some kind of consciousness because they are not in a good headspace. And I think that the, the ego will will take us in those directions and and, uh, and and keep us from being able to actually elevate and escalate uh, our, our beings, like who we really are. I love when, before we even started this today, who you, some of the spiritual teachers that you follow and, and like and um, it's cool to be able to to talk with you. You know, you're, we're like-minded. Like we we we've investigated a lot of the same stuff, and then there's stuff that you've seen that I haven't seen, and and vice versa. You know, but I love our conversations, and I would just like to keep expanding on this. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. I love you dearly. I'll see you next week when I come out to visit all of y'all out there in uh, Palm Springs. Yeah, everybody. Thank you for tuning in today. I love you guys. Thank you. And I love my friend Trey, and I hope everybody has a very good weekend. And on Sunday, we have a special friend at 11 a.m. It's Daniel Theorot. She's going to be my uh, guest. We'll be talking about mental health and recovery. Much love to everybody, and have a good day. Bye.